What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. So I have huge news. I just moved into a new house with my dad and Mandy. We're so excited. It's super cute. It's a little rink-a-dink. Like we've been having some issues. I have this outlet behind my bed that when I removed my charger from the wall, like the whole outlet came out with it. So that's not good. There's no carpet anywhere except on the stairs, which is very odd to me. So But the benefit of this house is that we have four bedrooms, which means one of these rooms is my podcast and art studio, but we just moved in and I have not had time to soundproof it. So this recording might be echoey. Um, Hopefully I can get some stuff figured out before the next recording, but for now, I'm under a big fluffy blanket, like huddled up with the microphone and my iPad because there's nowhere else for me to record. So anyways, I'm really excited about that. I'm super excited to have this space. Um, so just bear with me as I figure out how I'm going to approach soundproofing this room or I guess treating it acoustically. I don't know what the right terms are because I need to do some research. But yeah, tons of new shit coming your way, you guys. I'm super fucking excited My whole life is changing completely, and I'm going to be spending a lot more time on the podcast, so I really, really can't wait. Tell your friends what the fuck is up. You know what to do. Give me a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Share it with all your friends. Please keep sharing them on your stories. I really appreciate all of you guys. Get the stickers. Put them out in public. I'm going to get some more merch coming your way soon, too, so be on the lookout for all of that good stuff and spread the good word, baby. So today's episode is one of those ones where I like to just pick like a random topic and kind of do like a history deep dive on it. And I've always thought this one was super interesting. So today we're going to talk about barber surgeons. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's going to be kind of similar to the castration episode. We actually make a little bit of an allusion to the castration episode, which is fun. Okay, so I guess we'll just dive into like barber surgeons, where I found out about barber surgeons. Maybe I'm late to the game. I mean, I've known about them for a while now, but I don't know if you guys learned about them in school. I don't think I did, but I think at this point, if you've been listening to all all the episodes, you probably realize that I was not present mentally for a lot of the things I learned in school. So let's begin. So I was first introduced to the concept of barber surgeons when I watched The Misadventures of Flapjack on Cartoon Network as a kid. It came out In like 2008, during the recession, every time I say 2008, I have to say during the recession, but I definitely was watching it when I was like 13, 14, 15 as well. It's just like one of those shows that's like a comfort show for me. Either way, I would still love to watch it now. Um, I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it, I do recommend that you check it out for sure. It's super fun. But like I said, season one came out in 2008. By 2010, it had unfortunately been canceled. So if you have seen Flapjack, You probably know why it may have been canceled. It's definitely more of a cult favorite kind of show. 
has a cult following, um, but it did overall have good reviews. Flapjack is like honestly one of those like super disturbing cartoons. I'm gonna compare it to something and while it's not the same, it just gives me that same kind of vibe from it. Um, so I, when I think of Flapjack, I think of weird cartoons like the Ren and Stimpy show, um, Courage the Cowardly Dog, stuff like that. But so if you know the Ren and Stimpy show, like, let a girl know. Ren and Stimpy was one of Nickelodeon's first original animated cartoons, and it came out in the 90s. It was also, like, weirdly sexual, but I feel like back in the 90s, they were doing a lot more of that kind of stuff, where now they're not so much. Um, it had a lot of dark humor. My dad practically raised me on Ren and Stimpy, so, like, I'm kind of built different, but I also haven't watched it since I was a child, so I can't really speak much to it now. I know there was, like, one or two episodes that, like, kind of traumatized me, but I couldn't really tell you the plot or anything because that's how young I was watching it. But basically, Flapjack reminds me of Ren and Stimpy in the sense that it's just like one of those like weirdly off-putting shows, but you can't stop watching it. But Flapjack, it's not like sexual or anything like that. So I found some information about the show and like, I'm sure you're probably like, what the fuck are you talking about? Why are we talking about Flapjack? This is where I was first introduced to a doctor a barber surgeon. So according to Wikipedia, as a child, the show creator of Flapjack, his name was Thurup Van Orman, and he lived in Panama City, Florida. And he used to fantasize about living near the dock and having adventures all the time. When he was 13, his family moved to Utah, but Van Orman still dreamed of adventure. He worked after school as a janitor, saving money for a plane ticket to go back to Florida. And when he did go back, he packed some rice and potatoes and paddled a surfboard to Shell Island. And he planned to live off sea urchins and even, quote, speared a manta ray. But things soon went sour, which I'm thinking, why are you taking rice and potatoes to live on the sea? Like, you can't boil that on the sea. But anyways, so eventually he became badly sunburned and began to starve, and he returned to the mainland, but later tried again. And he went to Mexico this time, and he lived in the jungles and found himself, like, eating out of dumpsters. So Orman took this failure in stride, chalking up all of these bad circumstances as part of the adventure, which eventually became his inspiration for Flapjack. So according to GameRant.com, Orman pitched the marvelous misadventures of Flapjack around 2001 after just graduating from school at the California Institute of Arts. Because of his lack of experience, he was denied, so he got to work storyboarding and co-writing for shows like The Powerpuff Girls and The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, bomb-ass shows. A couple of years later, he tried his pitch again and was accepted, but after the show was canceled, Orman went on to do work on Adventure Time, and Cartoon Network's reasoning for canceling the show was because Flapjack didn't match with its new lineup of shows for a young male-targeted demographic. So that was all a quote from Game Rant. This is crazy to me because it was nominated for a ton of awards and ended up being like a huge inspiration for cartoons to come, like the previously mentioned Adventure Time, Gravity Falls, and the regular show. I think Chowder was also like around this era as well, and Chowder was like one of those weird kind of cartoons too, which I also liked. So Flapjack was known for its mashup of different art styles, including surrealist illustrations, claymation, and puppets. And the show was known for having these like cute, sweet moments of Flapjack. Like he was literally so cute. Um, he was very feminine. I think Game Rant even mentioned that they, they called him gender fluid and I'll agree with them on that. And then it would like contrast it with 
these like zoomed up headshots of one of the adult characters and it would just be this like disgusting and scary like demon monster situation like something you'd find living under a bridge in the middle of nowhere their faces would have like slime and barnacles and like rotting pieces of flesh and it was a little scary for younger viewers but it would be something like like how spongebob would have like a randomly weird scary scene of like that like gorilla or like courage the cowardly dog would have like really fucking weird scenes too so it was similar like that um not anything like alarming I would say like it just kind of fit into that category of what was going on back then they were all known for those tactics they were just like throwing in some sort of jump scare to like freak out kids for no reason but that's why I love it so flapjack is based in the disease-ridden 19th century and they live in a port city called Stormalong Harbor and the main characters were flapjack and captain knuckles who is just an asshole and they lived inside their like best friend slash mother named Bubby and she was this big ass whale and I always wished that I knew Bubby in real life like I would literally die for Bubby she's got this like sweet voice like the voice of someone who would just take care of you for sure anyway so Bubby and Flapjack loves in my lives and the premise of the show is that they're like I guess Captain Knuckles is a pirate so I would say they're like pirate adventurers and Flapjack is like the deck boy or whatever the term is. So they're in search of Candied Island and everyone in this town uses candy as like a form of payment. Instead of bars, they have candy parlors. So what I'm getting at with telling you all of this about Flapjack is that there's a character on the show called Dr. Julius Barber and he is the local barber surgeon and he's just as disgusting and off-putting as everyone else in this town aside from Flapjack. They really dove into the weird concept with this character that is a barber surgeon by making like the creepiest possible barber surgeon they could. Dr. Barber lived with his mother, who was basically just like a voice that you would hear when he would open his dresser drawer. And so I saw online that viewers speculate that she was like dead and that those were her ashes or that he was actually like mentally unwell and he was just hearing her voices. I think the Wikipedia article compared it to like Norman Bates psycho. But yeah, so that's weird. And he has a wife that's made of candy. That's not so weird. I appreciate that. He also feeds all of the hair that he cuts off of his clients to an off-camera monster that lives in the basement. So he's just this odd person in general. Dr. Barber solves all problems with surgery and aims to give all of the citizens of Stormalong a haircut and a surgery. His like catchphrase on the show is, hmm, yes, would you like surgery or a haircut? It's always been in the back of my mind. I used to always say that. Max and I used to always watch Flapjack together and Dr. Barber was like definitely our favorite character for sure. He used to freak me the fuck out though, I won't lie. There's only like two or three episodes where he's like pleasant and he's like smiling and not doing weird shit for the most part. It's like they would zoom in on his face and he'd be holding like a saw and like be ready to like cut you or whatever. I don't know. But anyways... He doesn't wear gloves when he performs procedures. He always offers a, and I'm going to put air quotes around this, hot towel treatment, um, whatever that means. And then he is a part of a singing quartet of barbers, so very on brand. Anyway, this was just a long-winded introduction to how I first learned about barber surgeons. Thank you, Dr. Barber. I just really wanted to talk about Flapjack, to be honest with you. Um, And then as I was like researching... It was pointed out that Sweeney Todd can be likened to that of a barber surgeon, which I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I fucking love that movie. But apparently, like, the time period that that movie was set, barber surgeons had already been, like, separated as, you know, one's a barber and one's a surgeon. 
it's safe to say he's got a little barber surgeon energy in him for sure. Like, I think also we'll talk about it later, but I'm assuming that like just because legally they weren't supposed to be doing the same thing, like one occupation anymore, people were probably still doing it. So I feel like that maybe is like an allusion to the weird murderer situation that Sweeney Todd is, which now I really want to go watch that movie. Okay, let's talk about real barber surgeons because they're like quite creepy and I feel like the characters that they're depicted as on TV are pretty like spot on. So today I'm focusing on the quote modern barber surgeon, but barber surgeon like people have been around for quite some time. Ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and the Chinese had occupations that resembled that of the medieval barber surgeon. And when I said modern in quotes, it's because they're not very modern. Like, I guess in comparison to like ancient civilizations, it's modern, but barber surgeons were around during the Middle Ages, medieval time. So, according to Elizabeth Roberts of Brain Blogger, in the ancient Mayan civilization, they were called upon to create ritual tattoos and scars. And the ancient Chinese used them to castrate eunuchs. So look at us. We're going back to the castration episode a little bit. Dr. Barber's, oh my God, barber surgeons. I keep, every time I was writing my notes, I kept writing Dr. Barber. And I was like, that's not right. Barber surgeons gelded or gelded animals and assisted midwives and performed circumcisions. Their accessibility and skill with precise instruments often made them the obvious choice for surgical procedures. So this makes them sound a little bit more put together than they may have actually been, but let's keep going. Medieval barber surgeons were popular during the Middle Ages, and if you're anything like me, you literally did not retain a single piece of information from your educational system about history, and that's fine. The Middle Ages occurred between the 5th and the 15th century. So the medieval period is essentially the same thing as the Middle Ages, which broke out into the early Middle Ages the High Middle Ages, and the Late Middle Ages. And I feel like you guys are probably going to tell me that I'm wrong. If John was here, he'd probably have a more specific answer for you guys. Wow, it's hot under this blanket. So as I've been researching barber surgeons, I keep finding these YouTube videos of middle-aged men dressed up in like medieval clothing and Renaissance clothing talking about like barber surgeon tools and the things that they would use on people and just the practice in general. And I'm not judging. Like, please go have fun. I go to the Ren Fair. I get dressed up. So, like, I can't say anything about it. It just makes me wonder, like, why as a species are we obsessed with these time periods? Like, we couldn't brush our teeth. Or we didn't. I don't know if that we couldn't. But we didn't brush our teeth. We barely washed our asses. Everyone was torturing each other all the time. And it's like the same concept goes for war reenactments. Like, why the fuck do we do that? Like, it's so odd to me. I don't do that. I definitely don't do that. Y'all go ahead and do that. That's fine. But like, you know what I mean? Like, why? And like, it's just such a weird thing that we just dress up like the past and like relive it. And especially these times that like don't seem that great to me. I mean, I guess the Renaissance was okay. Are people in the future going to dress up like us now? Like, as I was researching this, I like went down this rabbit hole in my head and I was like, what era would they choose? Like, fast fashion now allows for things to change so quickly the Middle Ages, the medieval times, like that was a long time. They were wearing like the same kinds of outfits. We changed so quickly. Like, will they be flower children? Will they be punk? Will they be scene kids? Like, who knows? Maybe they'll be like pumpkin spice Christian girls. I don't know. I don't know what I would choose. Let me know what you guys would choose. So now that I've derailed, 
The first attempts at surgery occurred during the classical antiquity era between 8th century BC and 6th century AD. And according to ancient origins, surgeons and physicians were very distinctly separated as early as 1000 AD. So they'd already made that distinction. So let's talk about the differences between surgeons and physicians at this point. And I mean, there's still two different things now, but so surgeons were known to treat the lower classes where physicians often worked in courts and castles and treated the higher class. So basically, physicians like thought of themselves as being above performing surgeries and would simply just observe the health of the afflicted patients rather than like actually doing anything to them. So the way that I'm interpreting this is like they really would only check on ill people of higher status. And then if it appeared that they needed a surgical procedure, then a surgeon would perform it because that's like out of the physician's wheelhouse. And so aside from like the weird hierarchy that they have going on with like the lower and upper classes, I I feel like that's like an appropriate segregation of duties. Like I wouldn't trust my primary care physician to perform surgeries on me today. So like I get that. They have different specialties and skill sets and like that's fine. But like let me be clear, at this point I haven't brought in the actual barber portion. So like we're just talking about straight up surgery. So also I mentioned Ancient Origins. It's actually a pretty controversial website at best, like due to their, their they have like conspiracy theorist tendencies and pseudoscience statements. Um, as I was researching this, I did see a lot of the same information on other sites and I used other sites as well, but I just like got some stuff from there. And they also have references too. So I think we're good. I'm talking so fast because I'm so hot under this blanket. I'm like, I have to get this out. Whew, okay. So physicians, mostly in the 15th century and onwards, were accredited and licensed by the universities in which they studied. Barber surgeons were not. So yes, physicians were super fancy. They had all this, air quotes, medical knowledge. I mean, at the time, like, it's not really medical knowledge. But so many of them spoke Latin, and they were held with high esteem amongst aristocratic families. They were, like, super fancy, could not be bothered, Um, And then the surgeons were considered like the grunt workers. However, there was no real desire to work on people like soldiers, peasants, monks, and everyday just people. So eventually there became an even lower class of medical professionals, and thus the barber surgeon was born. So before this, there were barbers and there were surgeons. And it seems like there were a couple of ways that you could become a barber surgeon, They had to apply to the trade guild and would subsequently become apprentices to barbers. And this apprenticeship was known to be relatively difficult, like whatever that means. I'm assuming being a barber during the Middle Ages was quite different than it is today. Like people were gross, absolutely disgusting. I guess it basically took a turn from there. Like you go to see your barber one day and he's like, oh my God, what? Your tooth is rotting. Like, let me just take it out while you're here. The other route that people could take was to become a surgeon's apprentice. And according to ancient origins, an average surgeon that was trained in one of these guilds was tasked with a variety of, quote, healing tasks that physicians just wouldn't do. The surgeon was expected to deal with basic wounds and lacerations with burns and skin rashes, setting fractured bones and dislocated limbs, venereal diseases, lancing infections, topical applications, and applications of poultices, which I didn't know what poultices were, 
that's like when you apply like a cloth over like an inflamed area and it's supposed to treat the inflammation. The more skilled surgeons would also perform demanding procedures including trepanation, which we'll talk about more later, amputation, cauterization, and delivering babies. The barber surgeon arose as a more lowly form of a true surgeon. So like I said, essentially an apprentice. They were tasked with more basic procedures and tasks that were slightly more gruesome and dirty. Besides fetching and assisting, a barber surgeon would deal with bloodletting, leaching, which we'll talk about later too, cupping, and pulling out teeth. As time progressed, barber surgeons became increasingly independent, and then eventually they became competition for proper surgeons. Elizabeth Roberts of Brain Blogger also stated that barber surgeons treated and extracted teeth, branded slaves, created ritual tattoos or scars, cut out gallstones and hangnails, set fractures, gave enemas, and lanced abscesses. So they just did it all, really. If you're into body mods, go find your local barber surgeon. Barber surgeons and surgeons in general became a necessity during times of war. However, there was far less demand for surgeons when wartime was over. Obviously, there were generally less injuries and reasons for needing surgery. Therefore, they resorted to doing more trivial tasks such as the barbering. And when I say trivial, I just mean in comparison to surgery, not to downplay like what it is to be a barber or a beauty professional because I know those jobs are grueling. One of the earliest jobs for barber surgeons was at monasteries around 1000 AD. They were on hand to cut the monks' hair regularly as they needed to be tonsured. Tonsuring is the religious practice of shaving the top of the head. And they were also there in case someone needed medical assistance, you know, because they're doctor barbers. So during the Middle Ages, monasteries became hospitals and sanctuaries, and the role of the barber surgeon became even more important. They began performing more serious procedures, such as bloodletting and amputations. Eventually, a law was passed in the 13th century, which is like way later than the 1000 AD. I'm kind of jumping all over. But a law was passed in 13th century France, which required all physicians in training to swear an oath not to perform surgery. This was very dangerous because now the doctors couldn't even perform surgeries if they wanted to, and they were the ones that had the actual, like, at the time, official medical knowledge. So this essentially gave free reign to the uneducated barber surgeons to perform surgeries as they pleased. A lot of barber surgeons did more harm than good, mainly because they didn't have the proper understanding of the human anatomy at this time, but also because people are sadistic and weird and want to see what's going on. Like, this was the Middle Ages, baby. People are torturing each other. And before someone comes for me, I'm not saying that, like, every single barber surgeon was out here cutting people up willy-nilly for the fun of it. They were all certainly cutting people up willy-nilly, but not all of them were doing it for the fun of it. Also, I don't know who's going to come for me, like, defending barber surgeons. Maybe, maybe one of my listeners comes from a lineage of barber surgeons, and I don't mean to offend. But, like, also, it's the Middle Ages, and, like, they literally can just cut people up. If you have ever taken, like, I took a women's studies, um, and it was an African women's studies course in college, and it was a focus on, like, the way doctors would basically use black enslaved women as their, like, guinea pigs for general like surgeries and procedures and just to see what would happen and so people were just literally just cutting people open they're like hmm I wonder what this does 
So I'm sure a lot of that was going on as well. So according to the Hectoin International Medical Journal, when urban towns and villages started to grow, physicians were outnumbered by surgeons because there was like a bigger need for them, I guess, Um, because not everybody like lives in a fucking castle. And to protest the physicians and their restriction of practicing surgery, a special college was created in 1210 at St. Combe. And I'm probably saying that wrong. But the surgeons were separated into two classes, the long and the short robes. And the long robes were like the master surgeons that were like established and were knowing know what they were doing. And then the short robes were the apprentices, a.k.a. the barbers. By 1371 in France, barber surgeons paradoxically surpassed master surgeons. This happened because physicians saw the rising influence of master surgeons and they tried to stifle it by once again giving headway to those who were less educated. So it's like all this like weird competitive thing. It's like the physicians and the surgeons were like against each other and the physicians were like, well, I don't want the surgeons to win, so let's like make barber surgeons, I guess. (laughs) Anyways, that shit's weird. In 1371, the French king proclaimed his barber as the head of all barbers, and then seven decades before that, in 1308, King Edward II in England granted the Barber's Guild status, and they played a major role in Britain of the time. And then in 1375, why was that backwards? That was like a weird quote. In 1375, this guild was further established and separated into two distinct roles, those who did surgery and those who were only barbers. Okay, a proclamation was also made that required all surgeons to be licensed by the crown in order to perform their services, and in Glasgow, under James VI, all apothecaries, surgeons, barbers, and barber surgeons were united under one charter dominated by the majority of barber surgeons. So that's like, I don't know why, I think that was from Ancient Origins, and then some of it, I like fact-checked it with the Hectoan International Medical Journal, so that was a quote from there, and that was like really... (laughs) unnecessarily like back and forth with the timeline sorry i thought i like did good with these notes okay one of the main concepts that barber surgeons focused on was called humorism and you've probably heard of this the concept of humors came from the writings of medical theorist alcmaeon of croton (laughs) of croton 540 to 500 bc um hippocrates is Hippocrates, is credited with applying humors to medicine. So the four main humors are blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, which is gross. Basically, the idea is that if you have too much or too little of one of these humors, then you will be ill or unwell in some capacity. The barber surgeons would determine whether there was an imbalance by examining the patient's urine, get ready for this, based on the color, consistency, and the taste of the patient's urine, the barber surgeon would proceed with treatment. So no fucking wonder diseases were rampant at this time because they were just out here drinking each other's pee, trying to figure out what's wrong with them. Like, sir, excuse me. So after they would taste the pee and look at it and whatever, this is where they were like, all right, it's time to bloodlet. And so that's where this comes into play. Bloodletting is when you release blood from a person's veins for therapeutic reasons. By releasing blood from the body, you're like supposedly rebalancing the humors, so like the blood, phlegm, biles, all that good stuff. And it pretty much never worked, aside from providing immediate relief because they were losing so much blood that they would get lightheaded and their blood pressure would decrease. And they're like, wow, I kind of feel good. I feel a little loopy. But otherwise, it didn't resolve anything. It just caused more bad than good. 
The main source of bloodletting was through the use of leeches. Unfortunately, they were using leeches so often for bloodletting that they became endangered. And when barber surgeons couldn't obtain leeches anymore, they would release blood from the vein, like I guess with a knife or something. As a child, for some reason, I was like really terrified of leeches and eels. And I know we're all terrified of like quicksand, but like electric eels and leeches were fucking terrifying to me. And I just thought that they were so much more prevalent than I guess they are today. But then are any of you guys on leech talk? Like somehow I have found myself on the side of TikTok where people just have like huge fucking leeches for pets and they teach you how to feed them, aka they just like let the leech latch onto their skin and suck their blood for nutrients. I'm all for weird pets, but like that one just doesn't sit right with me because like why do I have to feed you from my body? It reminds me of Little Shop of Horrors, which is like one of my favorite movies, and Seymour has to feed Audrey too with like the blood from his finger and like he like that one scene where he's like holding his finger over its mouth and like dropping blood in. I used to oh I hate it. It makes me so queasy. Like, I used to think I wanted to be a doctor as a child, but there's, like, absolutely no way I could handle that. I'd much rather just, like, get my gore in movie form. But anyway, so, yeah, I thought leeches were going to be a big deal. They were not. And that's how you bloodlet. They're like, okay, your pee looks weird. Time to, like, balance you out by, like, making you bleed a lot. Another common practice of barber surgeons was trepanation, which I said we'd come back to. The art of drilling a small hole in the skull just above the membrane surrounding the brain. And the purpose of this, according to the Hectoan International Medical Journal, is it was believed that this would allow the demon inflicting the patient to escape. This procedure of trepanation was used on patients with epilepsy and conditions recognized today, such as autism, which is, like, really sad. And obviously there was probably, like, mental illness, too, that they were doing this for. Um, Remember, this is, like, the time when people would be like, oh, you have, like, ghosts in your blood, like, do cocaine about it. I think Elena from Morbid says that when she does stories from like the 1800s. And I always think it's so fucking funny because it's true. They were like, okay, you're haunted. Like here's some fucking heroin. Like what the fuck? So yeah, they were just drilling holes in people's heads thinking that it would fix them. So they were really out here doing everything. Again, this caused way more harm than good. I think that we still do this trepanation um, for specific procedures today, such as like when there's too much fluid causing pressure on the brain. I think I learned that from Gray's Anatomy, so do what you will with that. Also, I looked it up, and it seems like a lobotomy, or the original lobotomy, is a form of trepanation or trepanning because you're boring a hole into the skull. A hole in the skull. Got bars. I think I'm going to do an episode on the history of lobotomies because for some reason they're just super intriguing to me. According to that medical journal, Hectoin, Hectoin, I don't know, barber surgeons were well acknowledged until around 1540 with the increased establishment of guilds and the advancement of medical knowledge. And I didn't know the definition of a guild. So a guild is an association of artisans and merchants who oversee the practice of their craft and trade or and or trade in a particular area. I didn't know what that was, so I figured some of you might not. So now we know. So the medical journal also states one of the prime movers in the separation was the 16th century French surgeon Ambrose Pear. Trained as an apprentice barber surgeon, Pear spent most of his career as a military surgeon. But during his fieldwork, his progressive methods set the basis for much of today's surgery. 
He developed his own sealant for cauterizing wounds and for more serious amputations, the use of ligatures. And as he lived through the era which introduced the use of firearms into battle situations, Pear was obliged to deal with more serious wounds. His success allowed him to write books on anatomy and the treatment of wounds. So this guy came out and they were like, oof, time to separate these two. According to Elizabeth Roberts of Brain Blogger, in 1743 in France and 1745 in England, barber surgeons who cut or shaved hair legally were no longer allowed to perform surgery. In 1800, the College of Surgery was founded in England, and the last practicing barber surgeon in England died in 1821. So, like, barber surgeons were going for a very long time. Also, they were doing a lot of dental work, too. So dentistry was another one of the many responsibilities that they were doing that was, like, gradually pushed out, delegated or whatever, to, like, its own specialty. So there was also dentists, surgeons, or whatever you want to call them. They were like, you know, maybe this one occupation should be split into multiple so that we can have, like, better quality of work and they can actually, like, really hone in on their craft instead of just literally doing everything under the fucking sun. So that's, like, the overall history of barber surgeons. Now I want to talk about the barber pole. So I got this information from Wikipedia, and you know the pole that I'm talking about, like, outside of a barber shop, like the red and blue stripes. So the original pole had a brass wash bin at the top representing the vessel in which leeches were kept. And they also had a wash bin at the bottom representing the basin that received the blood. The pole itself represents the staff that the patient gripped during the procedure to encourage blood flow. Isn't that fucking weird? In Renaissance-era Amsterdam, the surgeons used the colored stripes to indicate that they were prepared to bleed their patients so the red stripes, and then for the white ones that, I guess, showed that they were ready to, like, set bones if you broke your arm or pull teeth, and then the blue meant that, like, you know, they're, they're able to give you a shave because nothing more urgent is going on. After the formation of the United Barber Surgeons Company in England, a statute required the barber to use a red and white pole and the surgeon to use a red pole. In France, surgeons used a red pole with a basin attached to identify their offices, and blue often appears on poles in the United States, possibly to be like America. Another more fanciful interpretation of the barber pole colors is that red represents arterial blood, blue is symbolic of venous blood, and white depicts the bandage. So I don't think that, like, we were thinking that hard about it back in the day when we made the pole, but, you know, whatever. How would I know? So I just saw these on the Wikipedia page, and I thought these were so funny. They're just like random fun facts. So in Forest Grove, Oregon, the world's tallest barbershop pole measures 72 feet. And then the next one is barber poles have actually become a topic of controversy in the hairstyling business. In some American states, such as Michigan in March of 2012, legislation emerged proposing that barber poles should only be permitted outside barbershops but not traditional beauty salons. Barbers and cosmetologists have engaged in several legal battles claiming the right to use the barber pole to indicate to potential customers that the business offers haircutting, which I'm like, obviously, if it just says like hair place or cosmetology or barber, like they know that. Anyways, barbers claim that they are entitled to exclusive rights to use the barber pole because of the tradition tied to the craft, whereas cosmetologists think that they are equally capable of cutting men's hair. 
though many cosmetologists are not permitted to use razors depending on the state's laws, which I did not know. I thought that was really interesting. Like, why not? Okay, this one's good. In South Korea, barber's poles are used for actual barber shops and for brothels. So brothels disguised as barber shops are more likely to use two poles next to each other, often spinning in opposite directions. Though the use of a single pole for the same reason is also quite common, so it's like you can't really know. Actual barber shops are more likely to be hair salons. Yeah, that's kind of how that works. <laughs> Wait, I'm reading this off of Wikipedia. So actual barber shops are more likely to be hair salons. To avoid confusion, they will usually use a pole that shows a picture of a woman with flowing hair on it with the words hair salon written on the pole. So that's probably smart. I guess they said actual barbershops are more likely to be hair salons, like maybe because, I don't know, maybe like the brothels actually have barbershops in the front and then you can also get the the sex (laughs) while you're there. Or maybe they just don't do like barbershops. Maybe it's all hair salons. This last one was really random. So in reference to gambling, the phrase barber pole is derisive jargon in craps, which I've never understood what craps is. Um, I don't know anything about gambling because it really stresses me the fuck out. But I would play like poker or something with friends, but I don't think I could go to a casino. But yeah, so it refers to the co-commingling of gaming checks of different denominations. So wagers that combine different denominations are supposed to be stacked with the highest denomination at the bottom. So yeah, that's a phrase for gambling. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, barber pole is a slang term used by weather and storm spotters to describe a thunderstorm updraft with a visual appearance including cloud striations that are curved in a manner similar to the stripes of a barber pole. So I would like to see that, but that is probably not like a good thing. Like I probably don't want to be around that kind of thunderstorm, but I think it'd be cool to see. So finally, I'm going to end on, well, I guess I have two more little parts, but today there is still a Barber Surgeons Guild called the Barber Surgeons Guild. So barbers have reclaimed the term barber surgeon with like the official Barber Surgeons Guild, which operates in New York, New York and West Hollywood, L.A., Now, you may be wondering, how can they call themselves barber surgeons? Well, not only will they cut your hair, but they will also get your shit right. Are you balding? Call the Barber Surgeon Guild, or Barber Surgeons Guild. That's hard to say. I've said it so many times. Hairline fucked up? Call the Barber Surgeons Guild. Their website boasts that they handle hair restoration and maintenance, as well as regular barbershop activities. They claim, and I quote, Our expert medical team uses state-of-the-art robotics and FDA-approved hair restoration therapies. And these hair restoration services include the robotic hair restoration, PRP maintenance, which is like a platelet deposit type thing, scalp camo, um, which I'm just assuming based on the name scalp camo, it's like some sort of way, like if you've got like not a lot of hair on your head, it probably like hides that you can see your scalp exosome therapy and laser cap home lasers are some of the other services so it's like laser hair treatments and stuff it's pretty cool like I'll give them that I feel like I always see like ads for like balding men which I don't know why I see that a lot but like you know hymns and like stuff I feel like I just always see billboards of that I feel like a lot of men are balding a lot of men there's nothing wrong with it it just makes me really wonder like it's probably our environment 
we're probably just balding from that. But like, I feel like I see so many young men balding. We love you guys. We love your bald heads. I'll rub it for good luck. And finally, this is what I wanted to end on. So here is a fun little poem about barber surgeons written by John Gay in 1727. It's called The Goat Without a Beard. His pole with pewter basins hung, black, rotten teeth in order strung, ranged cups that in the window stood, lined with red rags to look like blood. Did well his threefold trade explain, who shaved, drew teeth, and breathed a vein. So I don't know, guys. What do you think? Do you want surgery or a haircut? I hate myself. So <laughs> that was Barber Surgeons. Um, I hope you guys liked it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I actually, yesterday I was with my dad, or maybe it was the day before. We were driving down the street, and I saw a barber pole, and it was spinning. It was rotating. And I was like, you know what? Fun fact, a lot of states won't allow those anymore. Like, they won't allow them to be moving because I guess there's, like, regulations about, like, what kinds of signs you can have. Like, you can't just have a, a neon sign or, like, a fluorescent sign or a moving sign willy-nilly. Like, you have to follow, like, rules apparently. So, like, a lot of states say you can't have them anymore. But we have them here in Charlotte. It was spinning. I don't know if it was legal, so I'm not going to say where it was, but I did see it. But this episode was really interesting to research. Go watch Flapjack and Sweeney Todd and look at the old men on YouTube dressed up like they're from the medieval time and share this podcast. So you guys know what to do. Like and smash that subscribe button. Just kidding. But do give me a five-star rating, please. I love you guys. You know where to follow me. It's at Profskep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can email me at professionalskepticismpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find all my links and stuff in my link trees on those accounts. I love you guys so, so much. Hopefully next week I won't be sweating under a blanket, but I do it for you guys. I do it for you. Um, yeah, I will see you guys next week. Stay sus, skeptics. Mwah.